Hello, and welcome to Prophecy Girls, a Buffy rewatch podcast. I'm Kara Babcock, pronouns she, her. And I'm Stephanie Chow, pronouns she, her. Join us each week as we break down every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer from the beginning. This is a spoiler-free podcast, and we're currently on season two. Whether you're watching for the first time, or longtime fans like us, we'll be analyzing every episode, character, and storyline like it's our first time, too. During this rewatch, we'll reminisce about our memories of Buffy, discuss the show's cultural impact, and provide honest commentary on the show. Thanks for listening! Now, on to the episode. Welcome, everybody, to the Season 2 wrap-up for our rewatch of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yay. So we've made it to the end of season two. Uh, it's been quite a journey, you know, tw- twice the number of episodes as season one, but we got through it and we have so many things to discuss. We have an excellent number of hot stakes from our listeners. We're going to try to get through all of those. And for the first time ever, we're going to try something a little bit different. Towards the end of the episode, we will include a section that has spoilers. So some of you have commented on, you know, you you may like the spoiler-free aspect of the show, but it does restrict our ability to discuss things that we know are coming and, and how the developments in this season play out over the next few seasons. We do want to keep the show spoiler-free for those of you who are watching along for the very first time with us. Um, we feel like you've entrusted us with that. So what we'll do is we will make it very clear at, towards the end of this episode when the spoiler section kicks in. So for those of you who do not want spoilers for anything past the end of season two, uh, you can stop listening at that point and you won't miss anything after that. That will be the rest of the episode. But for right now, until we tell you that there are spoilers, <laughs> this episode remains spoiler free. So feel free to listen as we chat about our thoughts and your thoughts on season two. And so many thoughts were sent to us. Thanks, everyone. We did a call out on social media uh, saying that we're doing our season two wrap up. Send us your ideas, your thoughts, your opinions and your questions. And you guys pulled through. You did not disappoint. Uh, And we are going to share as many of them as we can today, too. Yeah. Yeah. So let's season two. Everyone. I mean, I think we've made it pretty clear that we love season two. It is my favorite (laughs) season or I Let's, uh, no, I believe it was, we said it was the best season in our intro episode at the beginning of the podcast. I think that's what we said a lot. Yeah. I mean, I go back and forth on favorite season, yeah. right? Um, and it might change. But season two is a good one. Season two was amazing. Let's just yeah. start off with really quickly, like, let's just talk about how did we feel about season two versus the first season? Because the first season was rough. <laughs> And it was like watching something that you knew was going to be good, especially for those of us who have seen the show before. But season two feels like it's a whole different level from season one. It does. Uh, Yeah, it's like night and day almost. Season two is really where the show found its footing. And I think it's very clear when. I think once they hit Halloween, the show really picked up. The season really picked up. The storyline, it was very clear of the trajectory. Once you watch the whole thing, you're like, wow, that's where things began mm-hmm. and where the storyline picked up. And I think they did a really excellent job of carrying it all the way to the end. 
Uh, obviously, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't a perfect season. There are a lot of episodes in there. I'm looking at you, Go Fish, where you're like, what are you doing in here? But it didn't detract from the overall specialness that is this season. I agree with you. Buffy is Buffy because of this season. Yeah, and I, I think everybody had kind of found their groove. So the writers had a better sense of what they were doing with these episodes. And the actors knew their characters well. And I, I think this is common to most TV shows. The first season, the first episodes of the first season are always a little rough because everybody's finding their footing. And then you you can tell as the show goes on, right? After a year, a couple of years, everybody's just so comfortable in their characters. But I think that for Buffy in particular, something that I noticed about season two versus season one is the show takes more risks with what it does with the characters' relationships. So in season one, it was, oh, you know, Xander has a thing for Buffy. And that was the whole season. And it kind of took forever to resolve that because nobody wanted to do anything with that, right? And Buffy and Angel were just getting to know each other. Their relationship really develops in season two. And we go from Xander crushing on Buffy to Xander and Cordelia. And again, like the writers take their time to develop that so that the payoff feels a lot better than if it was just like one episode, boom, Xander and Cordelia, they're a thing mm-hmm. now. So I like how this season really shows us that the writers have the patience to build these relationships over time. Like, look at how they introduced Oz and it takes him like two or three episodes to actually meet Willow. He just keeps seeing mm-hmm. her and then they meet and then they finally start dating later on. So I liked that slow burn. I liked the buildup. And I think that they did a really good job of that. Yeah, I agree. It's actually one of the best parts of season two is that slow burn development of these relationships. Uh, For me, a joy of this season was obviously the Buffy and Angel storyline, but you just said it, introducing Oz, bringing Cordelia into the fold as naturally as they could have. I think it was done well. And all of those relationships are earned. And that's why by the end of the season, we really care even more than season one, what's going to happen to these guys. (laughs) Well, and even the bad episodes in general weren't as bad as season one, right? Uh, We ragged on Go Fish, but for all of its unevenness, was it really worse than Teacher's Pet? No. And I'll also add that Go Fish was a joy to talk about. And you and I have talked about it yes. before. The messiest episodes are the ones we have the most fun discussing <laughs> mm-hmm. because they're messy. Yeah. Okay. So top three episodes of the season. Well, this is why I love this rewatch with you, Kara, is because my mind changes from the last yeah. time I watched the show. So I will, of course, keep saying that Becoming Part 2 is my favorite episode of all the Buffy series. Mm-hmm. But Innocence has crept its way Mm. up there and i was gonna pick surprise but i think ultimately in terms of like what is a best episode innocence has to be in there and then oh you know when i was younger i would have claimed halloween as an amazing episode in season two yeah we have we had quite the conversation about that yeah but you know i'm gonna pick passion passion is also a game changer in the season it's tough I think this season has several standout episodes mm-hmm. and like it's been a while since I looked at the episode lists for other seasons so I can't kind of compare it to the other seasons mm-hmm. but 
you know, it's one thing for the season as a whole and its story to be good. It's another thing for it to have so many good episodes. I think your selection is great. So, yeah, like Becoming Part 2, no-brainer. Do I think it's the best episode of the series? No. Um, <laughs> okay. We'll get to that. <laughs> um, I it, it is one of the strongest season finales I've ever watched. Like, it's hard to do a good season finale, mm -hmm. uh, especially the cliffhanger, you know? For, for a show to do that, to kind of take Buffy away from everybody and say she's gone. Yeah, wanted by And the then police. leave you to sit with that over a summer. That's tough. And mm -hmm. then... Like, I, I totally get where you're coming from with Innocence and Passion. Very tempted to pick those. I'm going to go with uh, Lie to Me, mm -hmm. because to me, that is the episode that really, it's it's almost like the conclusion of a mini arc between the first episode of the season, where we're coming off of the, that prophecy girl high. Mm -hmm. Lie to Me, the seventh episode of the season, that's the point where we realize that things are getting too real again. Mm -hmm. I think the first part of the season was this lull where they you know, they had some Monster of the Week episodes. They had some fun once Buffy recovered her equanimity. Uh, you know, we killed Colin. Like, it's all good. Rest in peace, Colin. Yes, <laughs> we miss you. <laughs> so lie to me. Shit got real. Then that we, you had the Dark Age after that, which isn't a great episode, but it's showing us this terrible realness to Giles's past that damages his relationship with Jenny. So... Lie to me kicks that all off. I just, I love the way that Buffy has to confront that the bad guy in the episode is another human that she used to know very well. Mm. You know, Spike is a villain in that episode, but he's not really the bad guy. And we talk more about that in our, our recap. I'm quite proud of our discussion in Lie to Me. And, and maybe that influences which episodes I'm picking. Well, that's um, why I chose Innocence, because I loved our discussion in yeah. Innocence. So becoming part part two, lie to me, and then the third my um, third best episode. I'm going to go with School Hard because I think it, it is remarkable for introducing Spike, who is such an important character. We're not going to hide that, mm -hmm. and I love the Buffy Joyce dynamic. Mm. Oh, Joyce, I love the way that they fight. I love that Joyce isn't happy with Buffy, but then at the end, you know, she's Mama Bear. She's going to come in and and fight for her daughter. So I, I think School Heart is just, it's a delightful episode. You know, when the show tries to balance its high school as hell theme with the other supernatural elements of the show, it doesn't always get it quite right. And I think that's really where the show struggles in seasons one and two. But in School Heart, it does strike that balance quite appropriately. Well, two very significant things happened in School Heart. The first is that we learned Joyce's name. <laughs> Remember? Oh, yes. I thought I thought that was the episode, but I wasn't yeah. sure, so I didn't want to so say anything. So that was a big so, moment for us yeah. because we've been calling her... Took us a whole season. <laughs> Buffy's finally mom. Finally learned her name. So that was a big deal for us. But just like the breakout star of season one was Moloch the Corrupter. Praise Moloch. Praise Moloch. I mean, as well as the chatty doctor. We love the chatty doctor. Uh, the breakout star of season two is Stoner Joyce. <laughs> and it's in School Hard where True. we came to the realization that Joyce is just high all the fucking time. <laughs> like, I forgot. I forgot. That's where this started. Yes. And we've loved the Stoner Joyce memes that people shared on Instagram. So Thank you. Oh my gosh. I can't wait to see what season three's meme brings us. Um, <laughs> more more wacky yeah. memes from Prophecy Girls, for sure. And let's just go look really quickly. The worst episode of the season. <sighs> worst episode. Worst episode. I'm going to pick... Reptile Boy. Ooh, I was going to pick the Dark Age. No, Dark Age is way better than Reptile Boy. You, you, you're seriously going to say that 
Um, the whole like Giles Jenny sexual tension is worse than the penis. <laughs> hey, there's watchable, and then there's kind of like yawn and Buffy at the frat party with the with the penis demon Makita is something I would watch again versus Jenny's Igon. Right. You know, I don't know. That's just my opinion. But I'd like to hear what other people think, what their <laughs> top three episodes of the season are, as well as their worst. Let us know, everybody. All right. So next, and this will probably kind of be most of the spoiler-free part of the podcast, let's talk about the characters. Because as we were saying earlier, that's kind of where this season shines, is the development of our characters. Mm -hmm. And we've got lots of, lots of hot stakes to help drive our discussion here. So are we starting with Buffy? Yeah, I think we should start with Buffy. So first up, we have a hot stake from Kimmy, who says, You two have mentioned before that Buffy has started doing the sacrifice one to save many thing. But I really feel like becoming part two was a turning point for her. After this episode, Buffy really does seem to feel like the whole world is on her shoulders and she'll give up anything to save it. And then Kimmy goes on to say, I feel like this is the start of the journey that takes her to the end of a future season, but we will not discuss that at this point, maybe when we get to the spoiler section of the episode. Yeah. So yeah, let's talk about Buffy and Sacrifice, because I did talk about this in Becoming Part 2, I think. That was kind of like one of the distinctions I saw between that season finale and Prophecy Girl, because in Prophecy Girl, Buffy was all, I don't want to die, I'm only 16. She was very reluctant about her fate. And in Becoming Part 2, she is far more at peace with the idea that being the Slayer might mean her death. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, the death of Kendra played yeah. a lot on Buffy in the last half in, in Becoming Part 2 because that was the Slayer as well. <laughs> and she died and Buffy was, saw her body and was there. And that's a sacrifice that Kendra made. Like she was called just like Buffy and she died just like Buffy did, but no one was there to revive her. So... I mean, of course, that played a big role in the choices Buffy made in that episode. And what I like a lot about Becoming Part 2 is we see, it's so funny, because at the beginning of the season, Buffy is still kind of saying, I still want to be a normal girl. I still want to have normal things. I want to go to the yeah. cultural appropriation dance. I want to go to the frat <laughs> party. I want to have a date. I want to be a girl on Halloween. But then by the end of the season we kept making these comparisons between Buffy as a slayer and Buffy as a human girl. And Buffy kept shedding away the human problems in her life, right? Like she didn't have time to, to talk to Joyce about being the slayer. She didn't have time for Snyder who had just expelled her. She's like, yeah, I got bigger things to deal with at the moment. Right? So at the end, when Angel says, take that all away and what do you have left? And she says, me, does she mean the slayer? Like, did she sacrifice the rest of her life? for her destiny like i don't oh, know that's a good question buffy's been on a journey she has be yeah because the whole season has been about like you said this tension between her human life and her slayer life and going to school and can she have a career and all of that and that's what that's what a lot of the early episodes of, of the season were about and then of course the whole i slept with my boyfriend and it turned an evil thing i think really threw a wrench into that or buff so, you know, moral of the story, listeners, if you are a 16-year-old girl, don't have sex because your boyfriend will turn evil. No, but then you're going to kick his ass and send him straight to hell where he belongs. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, no, um, Buffy's journey this, this season is what made me fall in love with the show. 
Uh, she was so relatable. Like, kudos to Sarah Michelle Geller for pouring her soul into this mm-hmm. character. She really sold it. There wasn't one episode where she didn't bring 110% of her A game. And it, it really paid off. Like, Buffy's emotional journey is season two. Yeah, I agree with mm-hmm. you. It, it is worlds away from season one. And I agree with Kimmy with the suggestion that this really sets up the dynamic for pretty much the rest of the series. You know, I I think that's something that will constantly be coming up in our discussions is the fact that Buffy as the Slayer is far stronger than previous Slayers because she has surrounded herself with these Scoobies who assist her and help her out. However, she's always very reluctant to get them involved in those final battles, in those final confrontations. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting And as we continue on with the series, I think a lot of our discussions will have to revolve around where is Buffy coming from with this? How much of this is her trauma from previous years and previous experiences? And how much of it is the other characters? Because that's the other thing is the other characters are growing and changing. And and so we see that with Willow, right? Because in the first season, she was a mousy nerd. She was there to do the research, but she didn't really take up a lot of space. Mm -hmm. In this season, she got a boyfriend. She got some kind of sketchy job <laughs> situation going on with the school. Yeah. I still have no idea what's going on with yeah, that. Yeah, she got a part-time um, job. <laughs> and we see we see her getting into magic. And we can talk more about that when we get to the spoiler section. But just in general, right? Like you pointed this out, Willow's character has really changed. She's getting more assertive. Very assertive. Season, right? Yeah. So she's got a lot more confidence in this season. And I love to see it. And I think that really... The change for her was Halloween. And after that mm-hmm. episode, um, things started changing for her. Yeah, I would also say the Dark Age, too, mm-hmm. because she had to take charge. Giles was out of commission. And she, like, berates Xander and Cordelia. And she's like, get to work. Like, this is serious. And I think we're seeing how when Giles and Buffy aren't there, Willow's the one who steps up and takes charge. Well, now that you said that, it actually is so interesting because... She's berated in this season every Scooby member except for Buffy. <laughs> like in Reptile Boy, yeah. she came down on Angel and Giles for being unfair. Yes. Oh, right? yes. Now I remember that. Maybe that wasn't the worst episode. <laughs> exactly. And then the Dark Age, she came down on Cordy and Xander. And then she was rude to Jenny at one point, too, uh, I think in Innocence. So Willow has. Like I think we said it in in becoming part one or part two when we we're it was part two when we were ranking like okay who's in charge if it's not Buffy I guess Giles is next then it's Willow like <laughs> there's no mm-hmm. question about yes. it and I think she earned that this season but um, yeah I I liked this development for her I I am very weary of where it might go and we can talk about that like you said in the spoiler section mm-hmm. however. Um, it is something that I noticed more this rewatch with Willow's character than ever before, how she actually has a genuine joy in, for lack of a better word, showing off her talents and her abilities. And she's got a lot of them. Uh, but yeah, Willow and Oz, we got to give a little shout out to Oz. What a great addition to the season. Yeah. So I didn't remember how little Oz is in this season. Yeah, like a handful Like of I was episodes. surprised during this rewatch how he he kind of disappears for several episodes towards the end there and i think i always forget about that because since he he is back in season three and he he is very important in season three 
So I, I think my brain is always just like, yeah, Oz is just always around while they're in high school. But no, it, it takes us time to meet him in season two. And he's not as present in season two as I thought he was. Yeah, but we're happy to see him. Well, because he's just compared to Xander, right? He's just such a better male role model for watchers. Yeah. <laughs> and we're happy to see another teenage boy on the show for sure. Let's talk about... Joyce, Stoner Joyce. Uh, we had two questions come in. One from Sunny who asked, do you guys think that Buffy should have told her mom the whole truth in passion? And Veronica asked us, do you think Joyce did the right thing when she kicked Buffy out of the house in Becoming Part 2? Or do you think she should have handled it differently in any way? So a couple questions about Joyce here. And I think it's hard because Joyce... I, I said many times throughout season two when we were recapping that Buffy should just tell her mom because I think it would make it easier for her. And I and you always said, no, it's not time to tell her mom yet. And I think we're <laughs> we're both right. Like on a on a realistic level, it's like, yeah, Buffy, if you told your mom, then she wouldn't be on your case so much. Or maybe she would. Oh, eh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. This is hard. It's hard. It's hard because if Buffy told Joyce earlier, we wouldn't have this amazing scene in Becoming Part 2. And that's exactly why the writers let it wait until right. then. So I look at it from the point of view as Buffy's secret, her secret identity of being the Slayer. It's a metaphor for the burdens that teenagers carry that they don't think they can trust their parents with. Mm. So you see this a lot in young adult fiction. Teenagers go through a lot of shit and they don't realize or they don't believe that their parents would understand, despite the fact that their parents must have been teenagers at some point in their lives. Surely. <laughs> I think it's such a common experience for teenagers to feel like they're undergoing something, some kind of trauma, some kind of challenge in their life. And they think that, well, I can't tell my parents because my parents won't understand or they will overreact or they won't believe me. And that it's a very reasonable thing, especially when you have the type of relationship that Buffy has with Joyce, which is a somewhat contentious one where Joyce is clearly trying to make up ground. She has realized, having moved them to Sunnydale, that she hasn't done a great job in the past few years. Maybe she was just kind of, like, sleeping a bit and in, in stoned um, during the, the last years of her marriage to Hank. Yeah. So I think that it's not surprising that Buffy didn't trust her mom with this secret. It would be different if her mom were somebody who had her back and listened to her authentically from the beginning. And, and as we saw in School Hard, Joyce does have Buffy's back, but she, she does it in a very awkward mom way. So from 16, 17-year-old Buffy's point of view, I totally get why I can't trust my mom with this secret because she's not going to react to it in a way that's going to be helpful for me. Yeah. And that actually leads into the other question too. Like, did Joyce do the right thing when she kicked Buffy out? And I think those were empty words. I think she was angry, just like Buffy yeah. lashed out and pushed her. She didn't mean you can't come back, right? She didn't mean Yeah, it. she didn't intend for, for Buffy to take it that no. way. Because no, the, like if, if, if she had, then my answer to the question would be no, no absolutely yeah. not. Like, no, Buffy's still a minor. She deserves your love, right? And 
Buffy really hasn't done anything wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, I know Joyce was a little bit freaked out about the whole police thing, but at the end of the day, like from Joyce's point of view, right, you think your daughter is having some kind of mental breakdown or a psychotic episode, believe she's the slayer. You get your daughter help. You don't kick her out and say, well, you can deal with this yourself now. So I think unequivocally, that is the wrong thing for a parent in Joyce's position to do. But like we were just saying, that's not what Joyce intended. That was Those were words said in the heat of the moment. Mm-hmm. Buffy misinterpreted the, those words. I think Buffy wanted to because Buffy's punishing herself, right? By leaving everything, she's saying, I don't deserve my friends anymore yeah. because I killed the man I loved. And I can't come back from that. And I don't want to go back to my friends who are going to feel sorry for me and feel sympathy for me. And try to help me get through this. So she's running away, which is a very understandable reaction to what she's experienced. So, yeah, I I think that Buffy did that on purpose. I think Joyce gave her that opportunity to run away. Again, like if they had had that conversation earlier in the season in a more calm atmosphere when the apocalypse wasn't happening that day, maybe things would have went differently. But that's not the story that was being told. So... It yeah. is what it is. So, it, it ended up with a really climactic ending to that season between those two characters. And I'm really excited to see how it plays out in season three. Yeah. So while we're on the subject of the, the trauma that Buffy experienced, we did have somebody write in, uh, Kristen, who has experience um, as a therapist and uh, wanted to give us a little bit of a, like a correction and a nudge in the language we were using. So uh, Kristen points out that in our recaps of iRobot Eugene from season one and Reptile Boy from earlier this season, we used the phrase committed suicide, and that is considered an outdated term. Uh, and instead, we should use the phrase died by suicide um, because it avoids that negative connotation of like somebody committed a crime, right? Suicide's not a crime, it's not a sin, um, so it's a bit more neutral. And then um, in the first episode of this season, when she was bad, we were kind of speculating, like, does Buffy have PTSD from dying and being brought back to life? And so Kristen says, I'm a psychotherapist, so I can offer some insight on this. In order to receive a diagnosis of PTSD, someone has to meet a bunch of criteria. Although Buffy has experienced a very traumatic event, we don't see that she fits the criteria. And then she refers us to the, the DSM-5. So you can go find that if you want other criteria. Um, and she also mentions you need a time frame of six months for a PTSD diagnosis. And she says, if anything, Buffy would be a candidate for what's called acute stress disorder. Um, but Kristen isn't sure that she sees the criteria for that either. So that that's... I really appreciate that perspective because obviously neither you or I are mental health professionals. Mm. And and it's just a good reminder too. like in our society, I think we throw around a lot of mental health terms and and kind of diagnose people off the cuff. You know, we say, oh, she's so OCD or that's really bipolar. And that's not great. That's very ableist because those diagnoses have very kind of real definitions and it undermines people who do have those particular conditions. So thanks for the correction, Kristen, and uh, we'll keep trying to do better with our language. And uh, yeah, so 
I, I think we can safely say Buffy has gone through some traumatic shit. <laughs> um, and so we don't have to put a label on it. We don't have to diagnose her. But uh, things are just going to continue to get rough for her as the show goes <laughs> it, on. It's not going to get easier. And we appreciate uh, Kristen, people like you, and anyone who wants to write in and give us this education because we wouldn't know otherwise. And it's always great to keep learning and keep growing as podcast hosts, but also as people. And uh, Cara, I like that you just mentioned ableism because we talked a lot about that in this season because Spike was in a wheelchair for the second half and it was not under the radar for Mm -hmm. certain characters like Angelus. So we actually got a really great hot steak from Sofia Rigetti from Italy. And she wrote in and said, as a disabled person, I've seen a lot of ableism. Spike is in a wheelchair, and this is a symbol of weakness and fragility. In fact, when he becomes stronger, he kicks off the wheelchair with his legs as if it was an impediment. I think we should reflect on this and the bad stereotype of disabled people like weak or defective and how... Being in a wheelchair became the symbol of that. Cigarette equals bad person, as we said, and wheelchair equals weak and pitiful person, no longer a danger. So there's also another scene in in the school where there's a flyer on the wall behind Jenny Calendar that shows a wheelchair with a statement, do you prefer an hour of lessons or sitting 20 years here? Yeah. We missed that. And, um... Yeah, so basically she's just saying that Spike is less of a man and has less masculinity and less sexual power due to his wheelchair. And this is just a a stereotype that disabled people have no sexual validity. So absolutely. Um, Mm -hmm. Is this even better portrayed in media nowadays? Um, Yes and no. I think there's more visibility. I'm not an expert on this, but I think there's more visibility. You, You certainly see more characters, people who use wheelchairs in shows like this, right? Um, But I I think that, and I I think we kind of touched on this in a couple of episodes, it's that lack of nuance. It's like Sophia's pointing out that, you know, if somebody's using a wheelchair, they're seen as less than. Their disability is seen as this thing that they have to compensate for. When in reality, you know, your disability is only a disability because our society makes it that way. So I I think for us, and I'm saying this as somebody who's not disabled, so disabled listeners, please do write in and share your thoughts. But, you know, for us to improve at disabled representation in our media, we have to get to a point where we don't just have visibly disabled characters on TV, but we have visibly disabled characters on TV who are complex, who have different conditions, different severities of their conditions, different needs, and who are capable of having conversations with themselves, uh, with other disabled people on the show, with abled people about disability in a way that really captures the nuance of being disabled in our society. Yeah. And I love what Sophia pointed out that when Spike is in the wheelchair, his, his attitude and the way that he's treated. And then as soon as he's out, he kicks that wheelchair. And you and I pointed out, as soon as he comes back and becoming part one and two, he has his mojo back. Like Mm -hmm. he's exactly the character he was when he was introduced to the show. So yeah, that doesn't go without notice. Yeah, there's, there's just so many other ways that the writers could have portrayed that journey for Spike, because it's a great journey as a character. But there's ways they could have portrayed that that wouldn't have been ableist. And this is just an example of how 
when you don't have that representation in your writer's room, when you're not thinking about it from that perspective, it is very easy to have the to overlook these things. And we can make all the rationalizations and excuses we want about how, oh, it's from the late 90s, you know, it's just of its time. But at the end of the day, that's not an excuse, especially when we're not doing that much better right now. You know, we do need to point these things out so that as we're watching these shows, we're still enjoying these episodes. I love Buffy, as do our listeners and everybody writing in to help us critique it. But we can't pretend that this show is perfect, Mm -hmm. even for its time. 20 years ago, we shouldn't have been representing disabled people the way that we were on TV. We should have been better back then. We should be better now. Let's be honest and upfront about that, because otherwise we're just kidding ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, even into that, like Christine wrote in and said that obviously back when she was watching it with her parents who introduced her to the show, uh, she was blind to some of the more problematic aspects, especially considering Xander and the racial stuff. Yet, I still think that no other show has ever managed to make me feel so connected to the characters. While Buffy was never my favorite, her strength has always been an inspiration, and Willow is just straight up my idol still. (laughs) So there's a lot of things to praise about this show still. And I think you and I do a good job of balancing the critique as well as the praise and I think a lot of people like that. Although we will always come down in favor of the Xander slander and <laughs> go easier on Cordelia. Yeah, of course. But hey, we have reasons for that. I think I always say as long as we can back up why our opinions are the way they are, I think it's totally fine. And Xander deserves the criticism. I mean, it, it's our podcast, right? If you don't <laughs> like our Xander slander, go make your own podcast. <laughs> uh, but yeah, thanks for sending that in, Christine. Speaking of Cordelia... I know we got a really great hot steak from Hillary. Yeah. This hot steak from Hillary talks about Cordelia's treatment in the show overall, which is so important. Oh, yes. And Hillary says, Cordelia's treatment in the show and by the show's writers feels really familiar to me because I feel like it's emblematic of the type of mainstream feminism I grew up with in the 90s. Specifically, that it is uncool or shameful in some way to actively perform and enjoy femininity. Cordelia is unabashedly feminine in the show, and we as the audience are expected to believe that that makes her less smart and interesting than the other women characters. Women, especially in the era where Buffy was airing on TV, were and are expected to keep up with men, but still present themselves as attractive to men. What's most troubling is that in this girl power version of mainstream 90s feminism, that is a key theme throughout Buffy, women are expected to make that labor invisible. Even though Buffy always looks totally flawless, we rarely see her spending time shopping, putting on makeup, doing her hair, etc. And we also rarely see her talking to her friends about it. But we have to assume that she is still doing all of those things and that it's taking up a lot of her time on top of her slaying. However, we know that actively performing and enjoying being feminine does not make anyone less smart or interesting. So thank you for sharing that, Hillary. And this reminded me, Stephanie, of something you talked about, I think back in season one, about Buffy's outfits, right? And the heels and how, like, if you were the Slayer, you're like, short haircut, (laughs) combat boots, like, practical. Just practical, yeah. Just nothing to grab, right? (laughs) Like, nothing flowy. So, you know, the show is punishing Cordelia for not just being outwardly feminine in a way that Buffy isn't, but for enjoying her femininity, right? We know that she enjoys her fashion and she enjoys her makeup and 
She enjoys the status that it gave her as a popular girl in school before she fell from grace by dating Xander. Um, (laughs) And the show beats up on Cordelia as a result. So I I thought that, Hillary, you did a very good job of kind of summarizing something that I think Steph and I have kind of prodded at here and there as we discuss Cordelia, which is the show likes to punish Cordelia, as we discussed in Innocence. Joss Whedon, as much as he sounds like a feminist, (laughs) I think he secretly likes to punish women. Mm -hmm. And... You know, that's what he's doing doing with Cordelia. Yeah, and I am here 100% for people who want to stick up for Cordelia and join me in my crusade, <laughs> my Cordelia crusade, yeah. because Cordelia gets it wrong. Like you, like you just said, like she gets dumped on a lot in this show. Um, and many, a lot of it, just like Hillary saying, just for being feminine. Yeah. Um, and and I, th- this really resonated with me mm-hmm. because... This is something that I spend probably too much time thinking about as a trans woman, because I I do like the things that we typically associate with femininity. I I like wearing dresses. I like wearing makeup. I'm discovering these things about myself as I am quite sort of still new in my transition and I'm figuring myself out. But the more and more that I I embrace that feminine um, aesthetic the more it feels right to me. And I enjoy these things. They make me feel good. Like this is, I think this is true for all women. Uh, what Hillary is getting at is this double standard of you're expected to be effortlessly feminine. You know, you're expected to look perfectly made up, but don't look like you're wearing makeup, mm-hmm. right? But for trans women, it goes beyond that. Because if we dress too feminine, then we are targeted and, and criticized as trying too hard and people call us men in dresses and uh, a lot of transphobic people who would otherwise call themselves feminists will say that we are you know perverting feminism or upholding gender roles right because some people have this uh, misguided view of feminism that feminism is all about rejecting the feminine which i don't think is true and so when trans women embrace our femininity we're criticized for it but if we don't, if we dress more androgynously or more what's conventionally regarded as masculine, then we're told we're not trying enough. We're told, well, you just look like a man. You know, you, you, you must not be a woman because why don't you dress like one? And in fact, in some places in the world, one of the requirements to have your gender legally changed on your ID or be eligible for... Um, various forms of gender confirmation surgery is that you are quote unquote living as your true gender identity for a certain period of time. And it's very vague what living as means. Mm. So, you know, there's this pressure on trans women to perform femininity so that we are women enough for society. But at the same time, that makes it really difficult for us to us to discover what is our authentic selves? And for me, I love feminine stuff. <laughs> and it's something that I, I'm trying to embrace more of because I spent 30 years of my life not embracing it because either I didn't realize that's what I loved or I felt weird and ashamed because I'm supposed to not love it as as a man. So now I'm like, yes, heels, dresses, makeup. And then I look at myself and I have these moments where 
those messages from society catch up with me and I'm just like, but, but am I just a man in a dress? And of course I'm not, but it's tough. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what Cordelia experiences in the show does like resonate for me. I didn't go through it in high school, but it's something I'm wrestling with right now as I transition. And it's, uh, it's tough. Well, I, I thank you for sharing that because I think sharing your story like that will help a lot of people who maybe aren't as comfortable speaking about going through transition or, experiencing their well, femininity. And I, just, I want cis people to understand mm-hmm. what that is like, right? Because like I said, all women do experience this double standard, but I think because cis women grow up with it, mm-hmm. y'all are a little bit more used to it, as sucky as that is. So I, I just, I want cis people to to realize like when you're trying to be an ally to trans people and you're, you're including us, using our, our names and our pronouns and stuff, that's all great. Please keep doing that. But like, you need to do more. You need to like welcome us into these spaces and affirm however we choose to express ourselves, whether we're masculine, androgynous, feminine, a little bit of all of the above. Well, remember um, in Halloween how we were talking about <laughs> Willow's Halloween costume and how Willow is, you know, sure, she's a mousier character, but she actually maybe is just more comfortable dressing the way she does. And she doesn't need to sexualize yes. herself to be noticed or be to be taken more sexy or, in other words, more feminine or however Beth Buffy wanted her to look. Well, I see Willow's regular style is quite feminine, in my opinion. Yeah. Like, I like Willow's style. It's very close to my own. That's my point. Um, my point is that, like, femininity yeah. is to the individual. I would yep. feel very feminine in the way I dress. And another girl would might be wearing, like, you know, a pink floral dress, and that's what makes her feel feminine. Another mm-hmm. person might wear a baseball cap and a hoodie all day, and they're like, I've never felt more like a woman. So, really, it's up yeah. to you and what you feel comfortable with. And how you want to express that to the world. Yeah, and and people who judge and criticize other people for not being authentic just because of what they're wearing and how they Mm. dress, you suck. (laughs) You suck, and you are not welcome on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) One other fabulous lady who shows off her femininity in the show is Jenny. Rest in peace, Jenny Calendar. We miss you. We do. We're sorry for calling you Miss Carpenter so many times. <laughs> you know what? We don't need to apologize for that anymore, okay? We apologized and we gave out a free coloring book. So we're, we're done saying we're sorry. Uh, but Courtney wrote in um, after listening to Innocence and Passion and said, Did Buffy have a prophecy about the death of Jenny? When she saw her in her dream in Innocence, they were attending a funeral. I thought of this when you mentioned in Passion that we didn't get to see Jenny's funeral so so interesting because you and i didn't really talk about the symbolism behind that dream i think that's a really interesting idea i don't know if that's what the writers were foreshadowing my interpretation is that she was at angel's funeral like angel with a soul Mm. and the fact that jenny Mm -hmm. was at that funeral in her dream is because jenny knew the secret obviously jenny was connected to this the curse but it is kind of interesting to think about angel and Jenny were both in that dream, and they are both the next to die. Angel dying, being his soul, losing his soul, and Jenny being murdered mm-hmm. by Angel. So mm-hmm. it is an interesting little triangle we got going on there. Yeah, I'm with you on that interpretation. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I considered it to be Jenny's funeral at the time. If that is what the writers were going for, I don't think we would have mentioned it anyway because we didn't want to spoil her <laughs> or spoil yeah. Jen- true, Jenny's true, true, upcoming yeah. death. But <laughs> I think that's a really interesting idea, Courtney. And I think that you're right that 
Jenny's death was a part of Buffy's prophetic experience in that part of the season. Which parts were um, symbolizing Jenny's death? I think, like we were just talking about, I think we can probably debate mm-hmm. that. But yeah, I, I, and I like how you're thinking about this prophecy stuff because it was a big deal in season one. It was kind of a big deal in, in season two. We're going to find that the prophetic ele- element of Buffy diminishes in upcoming seasons. It doesn't completely go away ever. It it comes back in weird ways throughout the mm-hmm. series, but the writers seem to move away from leaning on the prophecy angle, which I think is very interesting. So when it does come back, I think it is worth talking about. And thank you for bringing up this interpretation. Mm-hmm. Anything quick to say about Giles before we move on? Yeah, well, I mean, just the whole Giles and Jenny relationship, right? Like, first off, this is a teen show at its mm-hmm. heart, but we were seeing this relationship between two adult characters. So I thought that was very unique in, in the way that was portrayed. And we just learned so much about Giles in this season, right? He went from being the somewhat stentorian, somewhat uh, fuddy-duddy librarian of season one to Ripper, <laughs> uh, who was in a sex cult and fought demons almost all his life. And, you know, there's a there's a darkness and there's a sharp edge to him, which we will continue to see throughout the series. But yeah, Giles grew so much. And I think Jenny was a part of that because Jenny pulled him out of his shell. I think that he was deliberately trying to pull off this nice guy librarian act for Buffy and the gang. And his involvement with Jenny, the fact that she's a little edgy, the fact that he started to let his guard down around mm-hmm. her. I think that drew the Ripper out in a way that maybe he wouldn't have come out if Jenny weren't in the picture. Yeah. I mean, when you say it like that, do you think Jenny was introduced as just another woman to further a male story? <laughs> you know I love those kinds of suggestions, Steph. <laughs> Honestly, no. I, I think Jenny is, as far as sort of minor characters go in, in the series, I don't want to call her a minor character, but you know, she was around for roughly a season. Mm-hmm. I think she's a great character. I think... It's unfortunate, once again, that the show leaned on cultural appropriation and kind of misusing and misrepresenting Roma culture and, and um, you know, Jenny's whole backstory. But I think Jenny as a person, as a, as a character, like, she was going places <laughs> yeah. until they killed her off. And I said this before, like, I like how we saw this older female character in the show as a role model for Buffy and Willow and I guess Cordelia, you know, and she, she was living her life. She was a techno pagan. She had her own style. Going to Burning Man. Yeah. And, and she, yes, she got into this relationship kind of with Giles, but you know, so often when we meet older female characters in, in TV shows like this, they're coupled up, Yeah, you know, they have obligations. And, and Jenny was a rockin' single lady. You know, she's hashtag goals, especially for me as a teacher. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so no, I I I I see where you're coming from, and definitely Jenny getting fridged was problematic in a lot of ways. But at the end of the day, like I think she was a great character. I think she they did a lot with well, her. Well, I read a nasty little rumor that the original person that was supposed to get killed by Angelus was Oz. So <gasps> no. between the two... Okay, I take it all back. Jenny deserves yeah, to die. Bye, Jenny. <laughs> See ya. You're not killing Oz. <laughs> so speaking of the writing of characters and the representation of women, 
Uh, we did have a comment from Rob who says, do we think Marty Noxon's involvement in the show is what elevated it from season one? I find it interesting that once she started writing episodes, the show changed completely. And she wrote Surprise, which takes us directly into what I would call the golden years of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Interesting term, Rob. I like it. So Marty Noxon is one of the writers of Buffy who was with the series once she joined it for pretty much the whole run. Uh, she actually she, she got an increasing kind of more senior role as the show went on. So she and Jane Espenson are the two women whose names typically come up the most when we're talking about Joss Whedon. I don't know when Jane Espenson got involved on Buffy. She's still working with Joss Whedon these days, which makes me very like... Mm, sketchy. <laughs> um, but... It's a great question. I, as much as I love this show, and I, I definitely read behind-the-scenes stuff, I, I haven't absorbed as much behind-the-scenes knowledge of Buffy as I have some of my other fan shows, so it, I can't really comment on this. I, I think that she probably contributed, for sure. Um, I just I don't know how much of the, the show was Marty Noxon's, uh, was a result of Marty Noxon's presence. But, yeah, I, I think... Anytime you bring more women into the writer's room, you're going to see the show shows like this improve, for sure. As much as we want to applaud Joss Whedon for being the most perfect feminist ever, uh, at the end of the day, he's still a man, and he, he's limited by, by his experiences and his perspective and privilege. So bringing more women into the writer's room to give us that perspective should be helpful. And I loved Surprise. I loved it more than I think I've ever loved it in any of my previous watches. It would be my top four episodes if we, I would pick another one so if nice. Marty Noxon is the reason for that oh my god you are my hero Marty Noxon because mm -hmm. that is some brilliant writing to get us to the next phase which is innocence where, which is where all the payoff yeah. of that buildup of that romantic relationship leads us to so I agree with Rob I think the golden age of Buffy between I don't know when it ends I don't know you know when does the golden age end but Ooh. uh as of right now season five <laughs> <laughs> season five um but hey if it starts with surprise if you can pinpoint the exact moment that it began and marty noxon had something to do with that for sure yeah. she's elevating that material well this is why i think it's so hard to pick like the best season or our favorite season of buffy because season two is awesome but in a way it, it burnishes the seasons to come. Mm -hmm. Like, I am so excited for our listeners, especially for those of you who are watching the show for the first time with us, because season three is really quite good. Uh, we have so much coming up. We have new characters coming in who are amazing. We have an excellent story arc for season three. You know, it's their last year of high school. It's exciting. Like, I am hyped for season three. So stay tuned. Mm because we got so much good stuff coming up. Before we get into spoilers, just really quickly, were there any things that we haven't mentioned yet that we really, really loved about this season? Or is there anything that we really, really hated? Well, I think you, everyone can tell that I haven't talked about Angel yet. And I love Angel. Sorry, who? <laughs> oh, um, Angelus, <laughs> the vampire. Um, oh, remember right. Remember in season okay. one, we found out he was a vampire and they wouldn't shut yes. up about it. Angel, the vampire slayer slayer. Exactly. And that has continued on until the very end of season two, that he's a vampire. Oh, my God. And uh, we're going to talk about Angel in our bonus episode after this episode. 
Angel on Trial. Angel on Trial. Ooh, and I'm so excited for that. So we'll save our conversation on Angel for then. Yes, thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, we did forget about Angel. It's just we got way more coming never, up. Never, never. And uh, similarly, when it comes to Spike, we talked a little bit about Spike. I love Spike. I also hate Spike. Um, and we can talk about more of that. Like, it's hard to talk about Spike in season two without getting into spoilers. We'll save him. Because we'll save him for the end of the of. Yeah. yeah, so so sorry for those of you who are avoiding spoilers, but you'll get there in time. <laughs> patience. patience. Um, something I really loved about this season was the girl dynamic between Willow and Buffy. Mm. Just the friendship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we took note every time. All the girl talk, you know, I loved how as wrapped up Buffy was in her relationship with Angel, she always had time to celebrate Willow you know, being attracted to Oz and kissing Oz. And, and it just, it was so wholesome and so fun. And I, I love that because we need depictions of positive female friendship in our TV shows. Yes. So that's something I think this season really gets yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And Willow had Buffy's back the entire season. It was really nice to see. I do think, though, the more confident and the more in charge Willow gets, I'm very curious to see how that will change the dynamic of their friendship moving forward. But for right now, <laughs> like you said, it's really fun to watch. It's really nice. And like that one conversation when they are talking about sex in Surprise, now that we know that Marty Noxon is the writer of that episode, it's like, nice, it's a woman writing a yeah. scene between two girls. And that's why it felt so authentic to us. Yeah. Uh, something I hated, and I talked about this in Becoming Part 2, just the whole treatment of Kendra. Like, she deserved so much better. She should have been in the season from What's My Line Part 2 onwards. Like, they just wrote her out, and then they wrote her back in, and then they wrote her out again. And, you know, like, we talked about how problematic it is from a, a race representation point of view, but just in general. Like, she was a good character. Yes. She deserved, especially if you are going to kill her off, give her more time. And, and Bianca Lawson, you know, we, we talked about her terrible accent. <laughs> it did improve. But she, she's good as Kendra. Like, she was so good in What's My Line Part 2 with those conversations she had with Buffy. And then she comes back in Becoming. And oh, she's so underutilized. She she is a character where I'm just like, too soon. Yeah, too we soon. could have done so much more with her. And it would have been so nice to have a person of color in the main cast. Yeah, we, were, we, we lost out on a really nice treat there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll say one thing, quick thing that I disliked, and that's yep. Xander. <laughs> Shocking. I mean, you came very close to picking him as the hero of the episode he, once. One, so. one thing that I will give him credit for this season is his heroism came out a lot more than it did in season one. Like in this one, we, we got to see that brave side of Xander a lot more, which is nice to see. Mm-hmm. But I just don't like the development of his relationships with the women on the show. I don't. I think the fact that he's confused, that he's got feelings for Buffy, and he likes Cordelia, but he's not going to treat her like a girlfriend. But then Willow has a boyfriend, so I'm jealous of him. And like, ugh, like, I just, like, I just wish... Castle Love Spell. (laughs) Ooh, he, like, mind-raped the women of Sunnydale. So, like, Xander and his girl problems, I could do without. Please, no. Like, just (laughs) let him dote on Cordelia. Why, like, just just give him the one girl. Like, why does he get to have all these girls? I don't understand. (sighs) Because Cordelia doesn't deserve to deal with all that shit by herself. Um, Okay, are we ready for spoilers now? Spoiler time! Okay, so from here on out, uh, if you want to remain unspoiled for seasons three and beyond, 
stop listening. Uh, <laughs> thank you for your time. We love Come you back, guys. Listen to Angel on Trial and our season three opener next week. But yeah, we are going to spoil the hell out of this show. You have been warned. Don't keep listening. So first, we need to give a shout out to Casey, because she emailed us long ago at the beginning of summer to give us a hot steak. But she also had a really great suggestion, which was to create a spoiler corner that went along with our hot steak section. And we were like, we cannot talk that long <laughs> in every episode. Our episodes are already so long. <laughs> we can't talk that long. Uh, I struggle sometimes. But we love the idea. Yeah, but it's a great idea. And so we're happy to do it from time to time. <laughs> Maybe depending on our schedule and stuff, we can toss in some bonus episodes here and there. We've got some ideas related to bonus episodes that we can talk about soon. But for now, here we go. I, I, I'm really glad we're doing yes. this. Um, there's so much in season two, as several of our listeners commented today, that lays the groundwork for the seasons to come. Mm -hmm. and, and we bit our tongue so many <laughs> times while we were recording. There are entire like minutes that Stephanie had to cut out from either of us mm -hmm. just kind of like being like so i just had this thought and you're gonna have to cut this out yeah, yeah so, but just so, so you let's know. <laughs> do it um let's start off with willow willow and willow using magic right yes and i i think i was kind of tongue-in-cheek for a lot of this season when we talked about this i'm like it's gonna be fine there's, there's no way this could possibly backfire yeah very sarcastic because as anybody who has watched the rest of the series knows this is a huge problem, and I have thoughts, and I'm going to save a lot of those thoughts for as we get to those episodes, mm -hmm. but this is an issue, and, and I think you did a really good job, Steph, of talking about it without spoiling it when you were talking about Willow's newfound appreciation for power. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> I never noticed this in Willow until this rewatch. Obviously, I've seen the whole show. I know that she gets addicted to magic later, and I know she takes her friends mm -hmm. for granted, and I know her treatment of Buffy in the later seasons is going to piss me right off. Yeah. Because it did when I was younger. So watching it now, I'm seeing the essences of it, the beginnings of it in season two, and I was shocked mm -hmm. to see it. So whenever I see it, I have to point it out, and now listeners know I'm pointing these things out. Oh my god, like Willow's obsessed with power, Willow likes to show off, like all this <laughs> stuff. Things that make her feel special, yeah. i.e. the magic, is an addiction of hers that's beginning now. Whether the writers knew they are going to take it that far, I don't know. But it's in her character, and that makes her a well-developed character, obviously. But mm -hmm. it's just so interesting to me that like, even in like, oh, you want me to be computer girl? Oh, I'm research girl. And then it turns into, I can do well, the magic. I can do this dangerous spell I've never done before. So I have a theory. Uh -huh. I think some of willow's attitude here has to do with her, her upbringing so far we haven't learned too much about willow's family life but we know that she comes from a privileged sort of home like her parents are like university professors or whatever and we've seen her room her parents fairly strict you know i'm not allowed to have boys in my room <laughs> so willow has had a little bit of a sheltered upbringing mm -hmm. And I suspect that her parents have really, really influenced what she is allowed to pursue. So for her, taking on this journey of learning how to use magic and becoming a witch or a Wiccan, it, it's rebellious, yeah. you know? It's rebellious both against her, her heritage, um, but also just against her upbringing as her parents. Like, you know, this is something that her parents aren't controlling about her. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and we do we do see this in season three a little bit, right? Because we finally get to meet Willow's parents. Yeah, well, or at least her one mom. Of them. Yeah, and that's yeah. I agree with you. I, I think that's that's correct. And also the fact that she was bullied and overlooked and Melcy all through her younger years. So and, and you know, since we're cracking the spoilers wide open here, <laughs> Willow's gay. What? <laughs> <laughs> Shut your I'm mouth. Sorry, Stephanie. I forgot you keep blanking that part out. Um, <laughs> What about Oz? <laughs> and and I, I honestly don't know if the writers know that at this point or if that's just something they came up with later on. But Willow's pursuit of magic. And as we see, like in season four, once she gets to college, she really branches out mm-hmm. and, and she really kind of gets more independent. Yeah. Not just in terms of her sexuality, but just like how she behaves, you know, and I think that's a common journey, a common experience for a lot of people, especially women uh, and especially queer people where you're closeted or you don't even know that you're queer in high school. And then as you get older and you go off to college and you experience that independence from your parents and your high school life, uh, you start to make these realizations about yourself. So I think Willow embracing magic in this season while she's still in high school, that could like be her subconscious way of being like, I'm different, you know, and she may not yet be aware that it's related to her sexuality, mm. but it, it's something that makes her different. And it's, she's, it's something that she's enjoying, um, you know, and I, I think it is, again, whether or not the writers intended to be, Willow's embrace of magic um, is very much queer subtext, you know, because show like movies like The Craft, you know, th- there's a long history of queer subtext, unfortunately, also queer baiting when it comes to women and magic. Yeah. So. You're reading my mind because I was going to say, you know, her introduction to Tara in season four yeah. and their relationship and how that escalates her ability to do magic <sighs> and they do it together. I mean, there it is right there, right? And we're going to get there. Um, oh, well, yes, we will we'll get, get there. there. We'll talk about that scene. Yeah, but uh, yeah, there it is. I mean, this is, that, that it goes hand in hand. And I like that you said the magic makes her feel different or is a way for her to channel her difference. And then later when she meets mm-hmm. Tara, that's when she's like a full-blown witch and she's, you know, got mm-hmm. a girlfriend. Yeah, so, so something that's interesting for me on this rewatch, because I, lo- I love stuff how you're always like, I'm just noticing this for the first time. And I'm just like, yeah, I noticed that like three rewatches ago. Keep up. Um, But no, I I am discovering new things as I talk about this with you. Something I'm discovering on this rewatch with myself, you know, this is the first time I'm watching the series since I've come out as trans and and realized that I'm trans. And, And I always did gravitate towards Willow as a character that I identified with because I was always the nerdy bookish i was the research person Mm. in my high school years i was the responsible person in the group you know um so i really did identify with willow to my eternal shame there is proof online that i once said xander was my favorite so i I do have to own that but i know i know i know you you gotta find a new host i know (laughs) i'm sorry i'm sorry to tell you Um, this way (laughs) but now that i've realized and come out as a transgender woman i'm really like seeing myself in willow and seeing my journey Mm -hmm. in willow i i knew about my sexuality as an asexual person when i was in high school didn't quite have the language for it but i I was pretty aware and then pretty confident of it into college so that part of my identity i was certain on but you know coming into my transness more recently a little bit later in my life it's interesting to me because it's like i'm seeing this journey in willow 
you know, the way she's approaching magic. And then later in the show, I expect to identify a lot with you know, her struggle to embrace her queerness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really affecting me because I'm like, wow, because like I, I do identify with Willow. She she is a part of me. And I always kind of was attracted to that aspect of her as a character. And and now I'm just kind of reevaluating everything now that I know I'm a trans woman. That's amazing. And I think that's why it's so important to rewatch these older shows again oh. and again and again, because you're going to relate to it as your experiences change and as you develop in your life. I know like my outlook on Joyce is completely different because of my personal history with my mother. And that's just, you can't help it, but notice these differences in every time you rewatch. Yes. And I, I know you've been telling all of us how Giles is a lot hotter to you now <laughs> that you're in your 30s. <laughs> yes, he's so hot. <laughs> and the thing is, last time I watched the show, which, I don't know, early 20s, Xander was a nice guy to me. Like, an actual, like, he was like, oh, yeah. Xander's funny. What a funny guy. Oh, I wish he was my friend. Oh, yeah, I <laughs> date him. Change. How things change. Like, I didn't expect to go into this rewatch with a huge hate for this guy i really didn't it was episode one where i was like i don't know about this this is kind of weird and then by episode three we were like yeah well this. i bet of course you heard my opinions <laughs> yeah because i went on the i went on the same journey as you like mm. i just said i used to have high opinions of xander and then as i became more aware of, of issues around feminism and patriarchy and yeah. misogyny you know uh i throughout my rewatches I gradually started to understand how problematic he was and is. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I remember you and I having those early conversations at the beginning of season one. And I'm just like, yep. (laughs) I know. And this is the thing. Uh, Like we don't, I mean, I, I'm telling everybody right now, listeners, season three, I'm not going to be nice to Willow and Xander because they have their affair. And this rewatch, Oz and Cordelia and Buffy are my three favorites like i think <laughs> in, the, in our intro episode i was like anya spike like i don't forget who like angel like whatever no oz and cordelia are my favorite and when they are disrespected in season three i'm gonna fucking lose my mind i'm gonna lose my mind i'm coming for you willow rosenberg i'm wait. coming for you <laughs> So it's it's not going to be pretty. Um, rewatch is important, of course. And if watching this from a 21st century lens has been one of the joys yeah. of this year for me, doing this with you, it's it's been amazing. Thank you. And the people that we've talked to, you know, through social media and through our hot stakes, like they're mm-hmm. so on, you know, like they're right here with us on our journey. Mind <laughs> you, there's a lot of people on TikTok who do not understand media critique. They take it as a personal attack when you critique this show, which is fine, but we're not going to stop. <laughs> we're not stopping. No, we're going to, like you just said, we're going to go harder. Um, okay, next up, we are going to save most of our Angel commentary for Angel on Trial, mm. but I think just, we don't want to do a lot of spoilers in that episode, no. so, if any. Yeah. So, just more broadly, you know, let's just chat a little bit about Angel's future on the show and how he gets his spinoff. And I think Angel's character really changes when once he gets onto the Angel series, right? So, so how do you feel about this, Steph? I know that you are very firmly Team Angel. Um, ooh, ooh, but you know... How do you feel about how they write him off the show and then give him his own spinoff? Again... I didn't come into this rewatch expecting to fall in love with Angel all over again. I thought my opinions on him would change. I honestly did. But, you know, they just came back harder and stronger than ever before. Uh, People don't change. Um, 
I think it was beautiful that she killed him. <laughs> Does that sound weird to say? I think in season one, no. when Buffy died for she killed she sacrificed herself in Prophecy Girl, but then in the end of this season, she sacrificed the one she loved, which was yeah. a million times harder for her. It's you know so, it's tragedy. That's the whole point of tragedy, right? Yeah. So as much as I made a joke that Jenny's, you know, as a woman serving a man storyline. Perhaps Angel and Buffy is serving Buffy's storyline and Angel's a hero mm -hmm. and deserves his own show. So I think yeah. killing him off and letting Buffy have that emotional journey is so satisfying as a watcher and as a fan yeah. of the show to watch her go through that. So when he does come back, I'm very curious to see how you and I are going to talk about their budding relationship that picks back up. So I'm excited for that part of season three. I yeah. think Angel's a lot of fun in season three yeah. because he's back. It's not Angelus anymore. Yeah. And it's almost like, I think people are more comfortable with him. Like he becomes a bit more of part of the Scoobies for the time that he's, once he's back, like obviously the first part of the season's quite rocky, but towards the end there, before yeah. he says, okay, I'm going to take off. I can't be around you anymore. There is this period of time where I really enjoy what they do with his character on the show. I enjoy his interactions with Faith. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can't wait to talk about their dynamic. And of course, she comes back uh, a couple of times in Angel. Mm -hmm. And to me, those are some of the best parts of Angel is just yes. the way he talks to Faith. You know, I, I think I'm currently rewatching Angel very slowly with my best friend who I rewatched Buffy with the last time I did my Buffy rewatch. And she, we're now watching Angel. She's never seen it before, which is a joy. Mm -hmm. um, my opinion of Angel as a series has always been, I don't like it as much as Buffy. And I think I never will. Um, my opinion does improve when I rewatch it. Like I used to hate season four and I'm really enjoying it now that I'm <laughs> yeah. watching it with my, my friend. I like how Angel's character evolves in Angel because I think in the Buffy series, he was always restricted to being a brooding fuckboy. And once he gets his own series, like you said, we finally get to see him as a hero. Mm -hmm. David Boreanaz does such a great job of turning him from a 2.5 dimensional character in Buffy to a fully three dimensional person in Angel. Yes. I will also give credit to the rest of the cast of Angel because I don't think Angel would work without the cast that they had. You know, yeah. Angel by himself does not work as a character because he's a little no. bit boring. Yeah, yeah, You need the people that he can play off of and they can play off of him. Well, remember uh, in the intro episode, I said that I watched Angel before I watched Buffy when I was yeah. younger. I caught the last seasons of Angel before I watched Buffy. And that's why I'm obsessed with Angel because that's my introduction into the whole series. And Angel is, like you said, a much more developed character then. So when I come back and watch Buffy, yeah, he's suiting Buffy's story, as he should, because this is Buffy's journey, mm -hmm. and we want to look at, look at everything through her lens. I mean, I am excited to see him come back, and like you're saying, to continue developing in season three. You know, how will he relate to the characters? He did a lot of shitty things, like we're going to talk about an Angel on Trial. Lots to come for that character. Yeah. And Cara, are we, are we going to cover Angel when we're done I'm Buffy? so glad you brought that up, Steph, because people keep asking us, and I did yeah. want to address this, uh, and we'll address it again and again. And again. We don't know. We, we don't know what's going to happen, listeners. Um, we're not saying no. We would love to talk about Angel at some point on the show, but there is so much Buffy to get through 
So Steph and I have talked. We have we talk extensively about this because it is on our radar too, believe it or not. <laughs> um, but the issue is, you know, if we try to do Angel sooner rather than later, kind of like alongside Buffy, it cuts into the time we have for Buffy because Steph and I have jobs. Buffy comes first. Yeah, there's only so much time uh, that we can spend recording with each other as, lo- lo- as much as we love to talk about Buffy with each other. Yeah. So that's a concern. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, we got a lot of Buffy to get through. We're going to be at this for a couple more years. Who knows where we're going to be at in our lives when we get to the end of Buffy. So we are intentionally not promising anything because we don't want to let you all down. And mm-hmm. we will do our best to talk about Angel when we can. We are definitely interested in doing it. It's just the practicalities of recording a podcast series like this means that we want to be careful uh, and we we want to make sure that we're focusing on Buffy the series first, because that is what this show is all about. Mm-hmm. If we can branch out, when we can branch out, you will all be the first to know. Yes. It'll be on one of these season wrap-ups when we announce it. At the very end. <laughs> yeah, we're end. just going to secretly <laughs> launch our Angel podcast shit off, and we're not going to tell any of you. Um, so... Honestly, like, thank you for asking. We don't mind that you're asking us. It's great that you're interested because that is something we're gauging, right? If nobody were asking us, when are you going to do Angel? We'd probably probably be like, okay, I guess we don't have to cover Angel. So yeah. we're not annoyed with people for asking. It's just, we don't know. We don't know <laughs> what the future holds. And that is exciting. Yes, we love it. It's open. It, you know, once we graduate from Buffy, the world is our oyster. So we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I didn't know I'd be doing this podcast a year ago. So <laughs> It's true. True. Aren't we all glad that it's happening? Prophecy Girls. Season two. I can't believe we're almost done season two. Okay, but we cannot finish up our season two wrap up without talking about Spike. Spike was introduced in School Hard, as was Drusilla. And these two characters, Spike especially, are so important to the Buffyverse. We did get a couple comments about Spike in our hot stakes. The first one is from at It's Audiel B. I don't know. Uh, But they said uh, that they can't wait for Spike to become a good one. That's all they said. And then Kennedy reached out and said, there's no doubt in my mind that Spike and Joyce smoke weed together on the regular. (laughs) (laughs) True. True. Um, Yeah, yeah, like I I said it in Becoming Part 2, right? Like Spike and Joyce's dynamic is hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) See, I love Spike as a character. I love his face turn. I love how he develops throughout the series. And, and I'm fairly certain I am correct in saying that the writers did not expect this. I think it was, you know, they fell in love with James Marsters. He became this runaway hit. And so they kept writing him into the series. Yeah. You know, because he goes away for most of season three. And then he comes back mm-hmm. in a big way in season four uh, with Harmony. And I, I adore, I adore Harmony so mm-hmm. much. And mm-hmm. I adore her in Spike, uh, her relationship with Spike. And Honestly, Harmony in season five of Angel is one of the reasons I love Angel as a series so much. <laughs> like, she's, she's so just good. great. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, I love Spike as a character. I love his evolution. Yes. I hate his attitude towards women. Fair. Fair. And the thing is, it's like, you can say that now, but we're not going to get to that until season four. Like, he's only in season three once. And I think that's actually a good thing, honestly. Yes. <sighs> I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to speak my truth, Kara. Sometimes the Buffy fandom can be quite toxic. And this is something I didn't know until I 
deep dived into it five to yeah. six months ago when you and I started the podcast. Obviously, I'm aware that there was a Buffy and Spike versus Angel and Buffy. I knew that was a thing. Mm-hmm. It goes very, very I deep. mean, it's a little bit derivative. I think that they ripped off Edward and Bella versus Jacob and Bella from Twilight, <laughs> right? Like those were the originals, weren't those they? The, yeah, that's the original <laughs> triangle, obviously. Uh, it's turned my head against Spike in a lot of ways, because like you're saying, and like we're going to point out, Spike is not good to women. And there's a lot of problematic aspects to his character when it comes to how he treats and how he obsesses. And his whole demeanor around women, there's a problem there and Buffy is wrapped up in that and that's not a good thing. So it's kind of rubbed me in the wrong way just from reading people's comments and like the obsession around Spike and how Spike has become a bigger figure in the fandom than Buffy. It's it's his redemption arc that really, really rubs me the wrong way, especially in season seven, right? Because. The show tries to turn him into a hero that I don't think he can be. He crosses too many lines and he he's just he's so misogynistic. And this just it just goes back to, you know, the more we learn about Joss Whedon as a person, the more I'm evaluating this show in that light. And mm-hmm. I know that he's not to blame about every single problematic thing on this show because it is a team effort. But, <laughs> you know, I, I think that. The toxic aspects of Joss Whedon's approach to feminism manifest most clearly in the way that he treats the female characters and then also the way that he lifts up these mediocre male characters. Mm -hmm. Xander, Riley, who is the worst, but... You know, if you read the show straight, it's like, oh, he's got a raw deal because, you know, Buffy keeps emasculating him. Like, no. Oh, no. Um, Right. And then and then Spike, it's like, you know, and the whole Warren, like, it's just. Yeah. Most of the dudes, except for Oz, suck. But but the show doesn't acknowledge that they suck for the most part. Um, The show makes it seem like it's the women's fault. And that's I think that's Joss Whedon trying to be like, hey, like, look at all these men who support or who like you know Buffy wins them over Buffy wins over Spike and he he goes off to get a soul for her and that's isn't that so romantic and isn't he such a good dude for doing that it's like Mm. no every single thing you have told us about Spike from his inception like he he was not great towards women before he became a vampire and it got worse when he lost his soul and you know everything you've told us about Spike shows us he's a bad dude and the fact that he's helping out Buffy and maybe having some feelings for her, and then he wants a soul as a result. Or actually, he doesn't want a soul as a result. That's actually an accident. Um, yeah. And I don't know. It, it There's a lot. We can't unpack it all here. Uh, we can't. We, we um, shouldn't. What I want to say about Spike, because oh. it's season two, and Spike was a joy in season two, and Spike's a joy when he visits in season three, and even in season four, Spike's a joy. And, and this is because Spike oh, yeah. is a villain who's funny, and charismatic yes. and bold. And yeah. this is what we love about Spike. This is, When I say that Spike is one of my favorite characters, it's seasons two to four, some of five. Yes. That's because Spike is so well-written to mm. be a bad guy, <laughs> to be this sarcastic... Yes, he's a funny villain. Yeah. And you're absolutely right, Stephanie. And I, I do want to make it clear to our listeners, I, I got a little worked up there. We're not hating on Spike. Like we said, it's a love-hate relationship. There's problematic things about him. 
But you brought up a good point. I think we have a tendency to fall in love as viewers with cool villains. Mm -hmm. And we love the cool villain. And then we forget how bad they are as people, right? (laughs) And it's like, you can enjoy Spike. There's nothing wrong with enjoying Spike. You are not a bad person if you like watching Spike ham it up on the screen. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I think it's worth acknowledging while we enjoy Spike's antics, that he's ultimately a bad guy. Well, he's a, he's written as a villain, and he doesn't get yeah. a soul till season seven, and even then, he does villainous things. So, I mean, we're going to get there, but I think it's important, like you just said, we're not hating on Spike. We're going to critique him like mm-hmm. we would critique any person on the show. We will keep talking about this, so yeah. don't, don't hit us with your hot stakes right now, listeners, but uh, when, we, when we get a, there. As yeah. we get more into it throughout the series... Send us your hot stakes then. You know, it, it's funny. Me and you are kind of unloading because we haven't got to talk about it for two seasons. Yeah. We're not allowed to talk yeah, about it. This is cathartic right here. We should do more spoiler episodes because <laughs> we need to let it out Maybe. once in a while. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I think that's good for me. I've, I've talked about everything I want to talk about. Yeah. Anything else from you, Stephanie? No, this was like therapy. I feel really great. I feel great. <laughs> I, yeah, I feel good too. And yeah. and I hope that all of you who stick, stuck around for our spoiler section, spoiler corner, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this. We can't promise it's going to happen too often. Uh, like we said, it just depends on, on when we can work it into episodes without them getting too long. We'll see. We, this show will continue to evolve. We are just starting season three. We're less than a year into the podcast. Wow. We got a, a ways to go, and I want to finish off the episode just by thanking all of our listeners who are so passionate about Buffy that you listen to us every week. Mm-hmm. You are just causing our downloads to skyrocket, so you must be spreading the word as well, which I think is lovely. <laughs> and you write into us. Steph and I love getting your messages. We especially love the compliments, but even the, the critical stuff is good too, I suppose. Um, <laughs> No. Yeah. And we're doing this for you. Like we we enjoy talking about Buffy together, but every time somebody writes in, every time somebody shares us on social media, you know, it, we're human. We like the validation. So yeah. keep it up and you're all awesome and commenting, yeah, liking, thank you. subscribing, messaging, sharing. Reviewing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You guys are so great. Thank you so so much. We got to come up with a name for the listeners. Well, yeah, I mean, we've got we've got a few ideas here. We'll talk more about that in the season three opener for yeah. everybody who's listening. Um, <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye. See you in season three. Thanks for listening to Prophecy Girls. We invite you to join in the discussion by messaging us on our social media channels. Follow us at Prophecy Girls Podcast on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook, and Prophecy underscore Girls on Twitter. You can also reach out to our email at prophecygirlspodcast at gmail.com or visit our website, prophecygirls.ca. See you next week. Bye.